Welcome to the Coyote Duran Show. It's episode three of the podcast. I'm Coyote Duran, copy and content editor for ringtv.com as well as ucnlive.com, the Undisputed Champion Network. We got a great show lined up for you today. We got two guests. Our first guest will be John J. Responti. He is the head writer of MaxBoxing.com as well as DoghouseBoxing.com and a frequent contributor to the Ringside Boxing Show, uh, which airs every Sunday. Our second guest is Renee Gomez. He is a blogger, a sports and entertainment blogger, actually. And he'll be here to discuss this weekend's WWE programming on the WWE Network. Now, for those of you who've tuned into the first two episodes, whether or not you've just downloaded them or listened straight from SoundCloud.com, or um, you've actually subscribed perhaps via iTunes or Stitcher, which these are now available, you know that this is not just a boxing show or a pro wrestling show or pop culture. It's a little bit of everything. So it thrills me whenever I get emails and questions in regard to something I'm totally nerdy about. And to open to the show today, I'm actually going to share an email question that was sent to me by one of my contemporaries at UCN Live. Um, and it's Bill Tibbs. Bill Tibbs is one of Bill Tibbs is one of our frequent contributors, a weekly uh, uh, contributing scribe. Um, he asks this, or he actually brings this up, and then he asks the subsequent question. Uh, he says, "Coyote, I've been a big Spider-Man fan forever." He says, "My favorite is the original 1967 animated series. I've also enjoyed the Tobey Maguire version in Spider-Man, Spider-Man Two, and Spider-Man Three. Also, I liked Amazing Spider-Man One and Two, starring Andrew Garfield." What's your favorite of the movie versions, and what are your memories of the original series from 1967? Now, those are fantastic questions. Now, me coming up as a pup in the 70s and in the 80s, um, having having seen a lot of these on syndication, these old cartoons, these Marvel cartoons, was an absolute gas. It was something that you erased home to watch after school. But um, I'll get to that shortly. I'll actually touch uh, uh, the movie versions first, which does not include the 1977 TV version starring Nicholas Hammond. That was a disaster. So I'm not even going to comment on that. I think those of y'all who remember that, um, you you share my pain. So let's get to the list here. Uh, my, uh, my number five out of all those five is Amazing Spider-Man 2, which was the 2014 uh, film starring um, Emma Stone and uh, Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield was uh, uh, portraying Spider-Man for his second opportunity in the series. Uh, it was a good film. It did seem a little disjointed in areas, but you know, let, let's let's not even call it a bad film. This is just my least favorite in the series, still being a good film to me. Uh, we got to see Jamie Foxx's Electro, uh, and we got to see uh, uh, a, a very abbreviated... Um, version of uh, of the Rhino, which we should have seen more of him throughout the film, but I guess, you know, they had their reasons for doing everything like that. Um, uh, my number four selection, Spider-Man 2, uh, featuring um, Tobey Maguire, James Franco, and Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. That was a good film. I thought it was a fantastic sequel. Going back to the more modern uh, iteration of Spider-Man originated by Tobey Maguire, we got to see Doc, Dr. Octopus, who, you know, another tragic villain, lost his wife, um, kind of went a little nutsoid, wound up uh, teaming up with uh, James Franco's Harry Osborn uh, in order to exact revenge on Spider-Man. Uh, number three favorite movie of the series, that would be Spider-Man 3. Now, I did like that one a lot. A lot of people didn't like it because they thought it was just too packed, you know, packed too much with supervillains and and, you know, they didn't like the plot. They didn't like, you know, Peter Parker being, you know, his personality being usurped by the black uh, uh, symbiote uh, costume. Um, 
However, I, I thought the the action and the the amount of villains I thought that really made the film. You've got you had Topher Grace as the the actual character Venom who had taken uh, the black suit which was tuned into Peter Parker before. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard as um, Gwen Stacy who way way prettier than uh, Kirsten Dunst and is a real redhead. And you had Thomas Hayden Church as the Sandman who was another true tragic villain. Uh, and the the really the real bummer of the movie was the fact that. When we saw Sandman last, we don't even know if he ever reintegrated. He might have just died right after dissipating in, in, in the breeze, you know. Um, also, we don't know what ever happened with his daughter, his, he, his estranged wife. And, you know, he had a sick daughter. So, and that's why he was, you know, relegated himself to, himself to robbing banks um, at the onset of the film. So we don't know what happened to his child. You know, it could have been something terribly, terribly tragic. Uh, my number two pick is The First Spider-Man, which uh, came out in 2002, of course, starring Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Definitely set everything into motion for cinematic versions of Spider-Man from then on. So that was four, yeah, 14 years ago. Still a dynamite movie. Um, however, what didn't make it, to what, what, what didn't determine that it was going to be my number one pick has a lot to do with my number one pick, which was Amazing Spider-Man, starring Andrew Garfield. Uh, I think he fit uh, he fit Peter more physically. He, he resembled, I think, my ideal of Peter Parker. We also got mechanical web shooters back instead of biological web shooters. I'm not even sure why they thought that was a good idea to ha actually have like uh, uh, spinnerets come out of the wrists and stuff like that. Um, and we saw Gwen Stacy come back in the first film as uh, Pete's first love interest, portrayed by Emma Stone. And that's the way it should have been. Dennis Leary played uh, Captain Stacy. Um, a lot better pick than I thought it was going to be when I first heard it. Uh, but yeah, I think an overall fantastic film. Did very well at the box office. It rated high to, you know, in aggregate websites and stuff like that, or, you know, as far as reviews were concerned. Um, overall, an excellent film. So, I mean, you might not like that. You might be surprised by that by that pick. But yeah, that's my number one, is uh, uh, Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield. Uh, one thing, you know, we're going to see uh, a new, another revamp of, uh, of Spider-Man with uh, the upcoming Spider-Man Homecoming. A lot of people have real problems with Marissa Tomei being cast as Aunt May, being that uh, in the last uh, version of Spider-Man, it was uh, Sally Field. So it seems like yeah, people are complaining that she's getting younger and younger and younger. But let's just not forget, Mar Marissa, T Marissa Tomei is 51 years old. So, you know woman in her early 50s, I don't think it's unreasonable to see her as a young man's older aunt. I mean, she's, you know, she certainly still has that youthful appearance. She's still a beautiful woman. But, you know, that being said, you know, I can just see in like subsequent remakes and reboots and stuff like that, that, you know, we'll have like Selena Gomez playing Aunt May and uh, uh, Gaten Matarazzo from uh, Stranger Things playing Peter Parker. So who knows? You know, we might wind up with children playing all these parts. I hope not. And that's just a, a really silly whimsy of mine. But uh, Marissa Tomei, not so bad. You know, let's just kind of back it up a little bit. You know, we look at the original Aunt May. Uh, she seemed very, very frail, you know. And, you know, somebody you wouldn't, I, maybe not necessarily see living on her own, you know. But uh, what are you going to do? Uh, this is going back a long ways, you know, in the early stages of the Marvel Universe. Let's not forget, you know, Spider-Man came out in 1962. So, and speaking of which, um, the 1967 animated series, uh, which uh, which featured a very early and kind of clunky Spider-Man, which was cool, though, and hilarious nonetheless. I think uh, when I remember it, it came out in 1967, so five years after Spider-Man came out. 
And you know now we're looking at 54 years of Spider-Man being in existence. But uh, I didn't experience him. Uh, I didn't experience that cartoon, that old cartoon, probably until I was about seven or eight years old. So, you know, we're talking like 1977. And uh, they would play this on syndication every day, one and a half hour episode every day. It was like Channel 44 in the Chicago area. And um, I'll never forget just sitting there watching it, just agape. And just loving every second of that. You know, you got the old Spider-Man theme song. You know the one. And um, just and this had the the uh, the potpourri of villains. I mean, you had Doc Ock. You had the Rhino. You had Kingpin. You had the Green Goblin. Mysterio. I mean, it ran the gamut. So it was really cool and really well done for that time. Um, you can't. You can't ape that sort of thing these days. It's a lot like trying to remake a Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, with, with newer animation, you know, that's what really would kind of take it down a peg. The old animation was a big part of its charm. And it, just the voiceover work, uh, the animation, the action, um, it didn't, uh, you didn't have like run-of-the-mill, you know, crappy villains of the week. You had hard-hitting bad guys. And the action was awesome. And I think that's one of those things that made those uh, animated series from back then so special. You know, you had other ones that were made more from like stationary pieces of art like Hulk and Thor but you you could see that Jack Kirby influence and that was awesome you know so it was almost like you could see like the 3D action without actually having any 3D action whatsoever so back then you had Spider-Man and Captain America Hulk Thor Iron Man I mean some of the greatest cartoons of all time were some of the simplest and they were wedged into that time period uh, and that makes me just want to track them down even more. I might have to start looking them up, seeing if I can find them either on YouTube, and if not, maybe download them from somewhere or find the DVDs. All right, uh, my first guest today on the Coyote Duran Show um, is a gentleman who I've known for quite a few years. Um, he could probably be considered as one of the good guys in the boxing media. Um, he's definitely been uh, uh, just a, a regular guy, a very approachable individual, knowledgeable as all get out, very kind on social media. Um... He is the head writer for MaxBoxing.com as well as DoghouseBoxing.com and a frequent contributor for the Ringside Boxing Show, which airs every Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. John is also the co-author of the upcoming book, Intimate Warfare, The True Story of the Arturo Gatti and Mickey Ward Boxing Trilogy, and he co-wrote this with Dennis Taylor, the host of the Ringside Boxing Show. Uh, folks, this is uh, John J. Responti. Uh, good morning, John. How are you doing today? Doing real good, Rowdy. How you doing out there in Chicago? My favorite place. It is out. Yeah, it's not bad, and I'm doing great. Um, it's, it, we're starting to start. We're starting to feel the chill of deeper autumn yeah. now. You know, but you're in California, so thank goodness for that. Um, I certainly would rather be there than here right now. But it's it's not horrible. It's like we're gradually slipping into the cold. Well, you know, but at least, you know, at least you, you've got that experience, you know, from, from being here. It's like you couldn't have, like, gone totally soft yet, you know, right? I mean, it's still kind of like dyed in the wool with you, isn't it? Yeah, I, I lived in Oklahoma, too, for a few years when I was younger and, and played football in the snow when I was a kid. It was no big deal when I was a kid. Now, of course, I would die. But, uh, yeah, I remember the really cold winters, and uh, it's a real shock uh, to go back to it after being out of it for a while. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, so just to just to kind of you know bring uh, the listeners up to speed, 
Um, you know, I'd like to think that we're both now considered boxing media veterans. What first drew you to the sport as a fan, and was there a really particular fight that drew you in? I've been a fan all my life. You know, it's kind of in the blood because my dad, uh, my late father, was an uh, amateur boxer in Chicago, actually competed in the Golden Gloves in the 1940s, and loved boxing all his life. My grandfather would engage in some uh, tough man contests in the 1930s in Chicago, and they loved boxing, so it's just been passed on to me. Uh, they would talk about it, my grandfather and my dad. My dad loved Joe Lewis. He actually uh, went to uh, the Joe Lewis-James J. Brodick fight in 1937, uh, he wandered in there at about 10 years old, things you could do, you know, back in those days, we weren't worried about things, they just let him in, he stood there in the aisle and watched his idol, Joe Lewis, knock James J. Brock out, so I mean, I heard all these stories, living in Chicago, you know, my dad would tell me about seeing Kit Catalan and Sugar Ray Robinson and, and guys like that, and, and just, just glorious times to me, so... In the 60s, I, I discovered Muhammad Ali, and that changed uh, Cash Clip, where it that changed a lot for me. I liked him immediately. I, I, I always thought he was joking around when he was doing all his predictions. I never took it very personally. And that was the time I was living in Oklahoma, so being a fan of Cash's Clip, Muhammad Ali was probably not the most popular thing right, in Oklahoma, right. but it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, I liked him, so it's just been ingrained in me, you know, and I've always loved it. I've always... Uh, uh, found the mono-mono aspect of it very fascinating. And then when I started getting real involved in it about seven and a half years ago, uh, I really started doing I mean, I always admired the fighters because I, I think that they just have so much guts getting in there. So when people criticize them, I think, you know, okay, you can criticize the performance, but don't, don't, don't act like they don't have any guts because that, that takes something to get in there in a fight like that, and, and, and it's just, I really even began to admire it more because of them. I mean, I really like them, the fighters, they're all, most of them that I've met, extremely down to earth, very honest, good, good people, and they don't like writers usually, but I always try to assure them, look, I'm not trying to burn you or anything, and we get along pretty well, but actually get along great, but, you know, so it's just been something that I've always loved, Cody, you know, and I think we're all the same, you know, when I met you years ago, I think we all had the same passion, you know, we just, we just love the sport, and it's in us, so it, it, it will always will be until we die, you know, so that's basically what it is. Well, yeah, and essentially, I mean, I, I think, you know, nobody really ever gets into media work because they just want to do it without any knowledge of it, I mean, we all started as fans, and very deep fans, and I think... As far as boxing is concerned, especially today, you really do have to be a hardcore fan of a niche sport. Um, which brings me to my next question. Obviously, you know, you've been, it wasn't like you were just some fan that just got into it. Obviously, you had been a fan for, for many years. But how and when did you first get involved in the boxing media? Well, you know, that was about uh, seven and a half years ago, mm -hmm. and the reason I did it is, is I was getting too freaking old, you know, I always figured that, I always loved it, like I said, and I always loved to write, and I figured if I'm going to do something, I better start doing it, so I contacted our good friend, Anthony Cox, yep. um, who was the editor mm -hmm. of Doghouse Boxing, I know you know Anthony, right? Absolutely, a great guy, a good guy to work with, too. Great guy. Absolutely, absolutely, and I said that I'd like to write about boxing, and he said, uh, send me something, and I did, and he liked it, and, 
and it went from there. It just kind of took off, you know. It was kind of just a shocker. And then I managed to interview Andre Ward, who, you know, we'll be talking about uh, in 2009, and mm-hmm. I loved that. And uh, uh, it just took on a life of its own. You know, I never expected all this to happen. I was doing it more just for fun, like most of us, you know. And, and, and I heard I hated it when they would say it was a hobby. I didn't really think it was a hobby because there was so much passion involved in it for me. It took sure. everything so seriously. But it just it just started to, like a domino, you know. Things started to fall into place. I met people, and I met Bill Kaplan, and I met Dennis Taylor, you know, who co-wrote the book, and I'm on his show every week. You know, I'm one of the so-called experts. So these little things just started to happen. I don't quite know why, but I I consider myself very lucky, you know, that it did, because I, I, uh, I love to write, and I love the feedback from people that read my stuff and whatever, so... It's just been an amazing ride, Cody, and I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty much thankful every day that I was in the right place at the right, right time. I believe that's pretty much pretty much what I can say about. Now, uh, John, when you um when when you attend a live fight, um, I've always been the kind of guy who I don't show up like you know right before the main event or like two or three fights before the main event. I'm the kind of guy. Um, who who shows up when things are being set up, like audio and stuff like that, and before the crowd starts trickling in, and you kind of walk into like a pavilion or something, and you look around and you see like the neon scrolling, you know, beneath the uh, the, the top mezzanine. Like if you remember the UIC pavilion, you know how it was. Um, do, you, do you see yourself as that kind of guy, the guy who needs to show up early to kind of drink in the atmosphere? Oh yeah, I love the atmosphere. I I, I, I always get there early. If I can, I go into the arena where there's barely anybody in there. When I when I attended the Pacquiao uh, Mayweather fight, uh, I I got my credential and I was able to just kind of smooth the guard there and go, hey, let me walk you. Like, All right, so I just walked around, you know, before the onslaught, before awesome. everybody got there. This was like you know six hours before anything was really officially open. And just looked around and took. And I mean, I've been at the MGM Garden Grand Arena numerous times for fights, but to go there when it's really quiet like that and look around, and then you might start talking to people because I'm not who that's the shyest guy in the world when it comes to boxing. And then when you come back, you know, and I was the same thing. I always get there uh, before the main fights start. You know, I'm one of the first media guys to start getting my computer all plugged up and everything. Tennis, it just starts to fill in, you know, that, that, and that's very important because it gives you a real perspective uh, on what's going on. And then when the major fight starts, the buzz, the crowd, the, the chants, the groans, you know, it's, it's almost like writing a story. That's what I try to do. I try to bring that in if I can when I'm there. And, uh, yeah, that, that to me, that's very important because you need that background in your mind as you're trying to write something that's not typical. And, you know, I've been lucky enough that people have said, look, you, you make me feel like I'm there, and that's what I'm trying to do, you know, and it's like, oh, good, because that's what I'm trying to do. So, yeah, and that's how I managed to get it, hopefully, sometime. I'm lucky that I get there, I soak it all in, I drink it in, I, I take it, and I try to sprinkle in little comments every now and then uh, being there. And, that, yeah, that is extremely important to me, and I, I'm, I'm always one of the first people there for that reason. Now, regarding intimate warfare... What was it about the Arturo Gatti Mickey Ward trilogy, a series that really captivated the boxing faithful over a span of thirteen months, that made this the book for you guys to team up on? Well, you know, I, I 
saw the fights. I watched all three of them, and I I always liked Gotti. I always liked Mickey Ward. I like both of them, and I love to read. I'm a book book nerd. I will admit it, and I, I realized here. that uh, there hadn't been anything written about those guys. We need a little individual stuff. Mickey Ward, he wrote a great autobiography with a person, and 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 he also had a biography written about him. And then there was only like one little thing about Gotti, and I thought, you know, nobody has written anything about their fights. I mean, biography about them and their fights. I was basically driving to my old job, a work graveyard, and it dawned on me, and I pulled over side road, and I called Dennis, and I said, hey, you know, I got an idea. And he goes, what? And I go, let's write a book about Gotti and Borg. He went, oh, I love it. And I go, yeah, there's nothing out there about this. He goes, really? And I go, yeah. So that's basically how it started, and uh, I was just lucky enough that I got a, a friend in Dennis Taylor that loves to write. You know, I know you do editing, and you know how it is when you like to write. You get an idea, you just start going with it, and we just started we started working on it. And we were excited. I mean, going back and watching those fights, but he never gets old. You know, those guys. You talk about what I was saying earlier. Those guys put it on the line. Yeah. And uh, they ended up basically about as close as two men could be. I mean, you know, they loved each other. They were really blood brothers. And I think and it was... So we, and we, you know, we brought all our passion into that. And uh, we gave birth to this child. You know, it's a warfare. That's how we look at it. And, and uh, it was just an amazing experience to write it. And, you know, it'll, it's going to be published on the first here, so we're only a few weeks away. So it's just incredibly exciting waiting trying not to drive everybody on Facebook talking about it all the time like I do, but uh, it's just forever right and you know, we want to write another one, so we're, we're already gearing up for another one, so we're having all kinds of fun with it. And that's what I, I thought was funny when I was doing my research in regard to, you know, talking about the book. Um, I noticed as well, I, I didn't see anything else that was uh, uh, dedicated to the subject, and I had wondered, maybe this was this this seemed to be a, a, a trilogy you know, if not just the fact that, that these guys were so, I mean, intense as far as being warriors, that maybe this was, uh, I guess, maybe an intimidating topic for most potential scribes to hook up on. And the funny thing is, when the first time I had seen it, uh, uh, you know, I, I was reading the reviews, um, you know, available on Amazon and whatnot. And, uh, you know, the, of course, there's the old adage of, uh, you know, judging a book by its cover. But the first time I saw the cover, I thought, wow. I thought, this is such a polished presentation. You know, you got that one scene of them just, you know, hooking into each other. A very iconic photo, might I add. But it was one of those occasions where I'm like, wow, the, the text, the placement, the photo. It's like, I'm judging the book by its cover. And it's like, it, it looks sensational, even from first glance. Um, now, when the second bout aired... Um, looking back, of course, you know, obviously, you've probably seen it dozens of times, uh, HBO tried this uh, black and white intro gimmick that was reminiscent of old Gillette-sponsored broadcast. Now, why do you think Ward and Gotti 1 inspired such a treatment? Do you think it was directly a result of a sequel uh, being made for such a brutal first bout? Everything that epitomizes boxing, and it, to me, it was those guys were like a throwback. Mm -hmm. They were like the 1950s. They were grazy and all the tail, but you know they went the distance. And they they weren't the most talented fighters in the world. We know that, but they were probably the most gutsy. And and the, the sequel was natural, just because <laughs> the fact is, as we talked about in the book, I mean, you know, uh, 
it was like, okay, look, you gave me a chance, I'm going to give you a chance. It was simple as that with those guys. They, they were not going to be denied. And we talked about that book. I mean, in the book, that a lot of people didn't want, you know, Ward won the first fight. And it was like, yes, people were like, nah. And Ward's like, no, he gave me a chance. So I want to fight a pro guy. So it's simple. It's just simple as that. And then they knew, of course, that the people loved it. And even though the, the people around them were worried about them because of the brutality, it didn't matter. And then, again, that's what makes it so attractive on so many levels. I mean, they they were the blood brothers, like I said, and they were equals. As uh, Richie Ward says, it was like facing, facing himself. You mm-hmm. know, God, he said the same thing. They were like mirror images of each other. So, you know, the, you know one was Irish and one was Italian. Right. That, you know. So it was just fascinating. It had to be a like, almost like a movie, you know, like a rock. It had to be a rock. You do have a rock. So, even though this was real life, so it was just, it was natural. And then they, they did the same thing with player fights. Like, yeah, you know, uh, it's one on one, we got to fight again. So, even though, again, people were complaining, well, you know, you don't need to fight him again. Nope, nope, I'm going to fight him again. So, uh, I just love the, in a sense, the simple, the, the, the simple nature of, look, I gave him my word, we're fighting again. But you just don't have that nowadays much and, I, and that was the other thing was Dennis and I were like people need to be reminded about this that there is honor and there is integrity and there is a time when your word means something and with those guys it did so again you know you just end up really admiring them for for their honesty and integrity in the ring and their, their interaction with each other now, what was the process like putting the book together overall? And was it difficult to round up any of the folks invested during this time period? And did it ultimately become an emotional process? You know, the, round up, the, the, the writing, it wasn't, wasn't that hard, really, because we both love it so much. Uh, Dennis did a little bit of background and some of the biography. I helped him a little bit. He did most of that. I did all the fights. Uh, and it was emotional because if you remember Spiegel's legendary debate, the last one they did, mm-hmm. uh, and that one touched on when Mickey Ward talked about when he forgot he had died, and we we we, we broached that in the book too. Uh, it was very emotional because that last hug between the two of them, the third fight, because you know, grown men, we're not supposed to be touched like this. I mean, we're crying like babies. You're right, absolutely. Remember that? Absolutely. And yeah. I'm, yeah, and as I'm watching it again, I'm crying. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting there going, I gotta write about this. I have to stay impartial. So I tried my hardest to back off and write about what I saw. But I was really emotionally invested into it. Invested. Mm-hmm. So it was it was tough, you know, in that respect. But there was also the love thing and the fact that we love to write. So, that's, you know, they talk about collaborating with somebody, how difficult it can be. Sure. But this was dreamless. This was dreamless. I mean, this was seamless. We both knew what we wanted to do. We both knew what our, uh, our object was, and we just did it. And he would send me stuff, and I would send him stuff, and away it went. So, it didn't take us very long to do it, and... You know, it's like I said, that's why we want to write another one so badly, because the first one was so much fun, and then hopefully it'll sell a few copies or go from there, but um, there was a lot of emotion, and there still is. I mean, when we talk about it, we still get a little emotional about it, because we we felt we got about as close to these guys as we could, but 
only the two of them really understand what they were doing. So it was quite a subject, you know, more complicated than people think because of the closeness that you guys, in that picture you're talking about on the cover, Coach, yeah. that's from Ed Mulholland. And Ed, Ed Mulholland is one of the best sports photographers out there. He does football, MMA, boxing, everything. And he sent us some photos, and Dennis and I picked that one right away for the cover and went, oh, if that can capture those two guys, nothing. And in the black and white aspect, that was a no-brainer. So, yeah, that's, that's why we went that way with that. Now, uh, had Gaddy not been propelled to relative stardom as a result of this trilogy, like say he took his loss in the first bout and then redirected to different opponents, do you think his fate might have shifted somewhat and he might still be with us today? Oh, um, I had asked if uh, if Gaddy had been propelled to relative stardom as a result of the trilogy. Uh, like, he, if he took his loss in the first bout and redirected to different opponents instead of having rematches with Ward, do you think his fate might have shifted somewhat and he might still be with us today? I think it would have had an effect on his legacy, yes, because, you know, he, he went to hell and back in, in all those fights like Ward, and, and that made him, in a sense, legend. And not because, again, not because of their talent, which is really interesting. You know, most of the time... We put the really great fighters up on the, on the pinnacle, like Muhammad Ali, Floyd Mayweather, whatever. Those guys, we go, oh, they're great. But it's the other guys that capture our hearts. Right. And that's what they did, and that's what God Because he, he, he had already done so many amazing things in the ring anyway. that he just cemented to me his legacy. And that's why, you know, when he got elected into the Hall of Fame, it was controversial. But I agree with him, because he left so many incredible memories for boxing fans and I write about that in the book I get to give my my opinion on why I think he deserved to be elected into the boxing hall of fame so uh, yeah I think it would have affected it and it would have affected war too I mean they because each fight brought them up higher as far as boxers that boxing fans not just hardcore fans like you and me are really admired mm. uh, and so it cemented it as far as I was concerned that those three fights, they'll live, in, they'll live forever because of those fights in boxing history. Okay, so now as we shift from the timeless to the timely and we go from one word to another, I'd like to touch upon this coming Saturday, November 19. Um, Unified light heavyweight champion Sergey Kovalev, who's 30 win, he has 30 wins, zero losses, and one draw with 26 wins coming by way of knockout, will defend his straps... Um, against uh, Andre Ward, of course. He has a record of 30 wins, zero losses, and 15 of his wins coming by the way of lock, knockout. And a long-awaited clash on HBO pay-per-view. John, why do you think this fight was made? And with only three fights at 175 pounds since June of last year, does Andre Ward really deserve a shot at Kovalev? I think the fight was made because uh, uh, Kovalev and Andre Ward agree on the same thing. They want to fight the best. Mm-hmm. And Andre Ward realizes that Kovalov is one of the best, and he wants to test himself. I mean, a lot of people don't like Andre Ward. I understand that. I respect that. You know, everybody's got a right their opinion. Sure. But you have to respect the fact that he wants to fight the best guy. And he, he wanted to fight He actually really wanted to fight Golovkin. But, you know, as you know, that didn't happen. So right. he moved up to fight Sergey Kovalov. So does he deserve it? I think he does because... 
you know, who else is there really out there right now that would get people interested? Hopefully, you know, Madonna Stevenson, but, you know, that fell through already, and that doesn't seem to be happening. So, yeah, I think, I think it's a good matchup. I think they both needed this. They both deserved it. And, you know, I first wrote an article called Beast vs. Braun, and that's kind of how I see it. You know, you've got the killer crusher versus the brainy Andre Ward. So it's the classic matchup. And hopefully, you know, I was just reading that it's not really getting a lot of buzz, but, you know, that's too bad. Because it's, again, even if someone would throw back with Styles, you know, you know, Styles make boxing. And this is a contrast. He's got the options. And uh, uh, I think that's what makes the fight so intriguing. And I, I, I for one, are extremely, extremely excited about it. I can't wait to see it. You know, it's only a few days away, so let's get it on. You know, I'm excited. I am too, absolutely. And here, which leads to my next question in regard to the, you know, the, the draw of this bout. You know, we know what, uh, uh, what the Floyd Mayweather-Manny Pacquiao match in uh, May of last year I guess kind of did to the sport of boxing. At least, you know, it pushed away the potentially the, the potential new fan. Uh, but we hardcore fans, we stick it out for the long run, obviously. Do you think this bout, uh, if, it, if it turns out to be a really good bout, you know, if, if the boxer versus puncher formula doesn't turn out to be, you know, something of a bore... Uh, do you think this could uh, a good result could go a long way to repairing the reputation of the sport? Yes, but you know I think he put that on this fight because you know being honest and you know this I'm sure better than anybody that and we both know this about Andre War. Andre a lot of times doesn't fight exciting fights. Right. He just wins. Mm-hmm. You know he's that old adage the old graders. You know Al Davis they just win, baby, and that's what he does. He just wins. Yep. He'll do what he needs to do to win. He's not going to stand there in a pocket and slug with Sergey Kovalev. He might at some point, at some point. But I don't see, you know, I don't see Tom, uh, Hearns and Hagler or anything like that, which would be a fight that would really have an impact in boxing. But the problem is, from what I see and what from I hear, is that a lot of people aren't even going to buy the pay-per-view. So even if it's a great fight, there won't be a lot of people that see it. But we can all write about that it was a great fight, so that'll help. So it's kind of a mixed bag, you know, because, like like you said, the hardcore, we're all excited about it, but is it crossover? I don't think so, because they're not, you know, as our friend Steve Kim said, they're both not real charismatic guys. They don't talk nasty about each other, which unfortunately is part of the selling, selling fight nowadays. They just fight. And, uh, if that was a selling point, it's a hard selling point because they both have the highest respect for each other, and uh, uh, and that's how you sell it. But again, a lot of people go, "Oh, hum, that's boring." And if you don't know how good these guys are, how elite these guys are, then you're just going to go, "Who? Who's fighting?" So it's been kind of disappointing in that respect. But I do believe that even if it's just a good fight, that will help because that's what boxing needs right now. Good fights. You know, next week we have Lomachenko against Walters. Mm. That should be a really good fight. So these are back-to-back weekends that have some good fights. And I, I, I can guarantee that the Lomachenko-Walters fight must turn out to be a great fight. Now, certainly good. Very good. Ward and Kolov, it's, if it's good, that'll be a very big plus for boxing. 
now, in what manner do you see either man winning this bout, and do you have a prediction? Fair enough. Um, now, uh, we recently discussed uh, you, that you're helping strengthen the masthead at Max Boxing by, you know, helping other writers come in and um, and, and really helping strengthen the tradition, which is Max Boxing, which is uh, has been around for well over 16-some-odd years. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, planning another book as well. Any other future plans for you? Uh, oh, uh, what are your future plans other than uh, uh, possibly putting together another book and, and strengthening the masthead at Max Boxing? Oh, well, you know, I really have a lot of desire to try to bring Max back. I mean, you were part of Max Boxing, mm-hmm. and, 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 um, and you did a great job as an editor Thank there. You. And Steve King did a great job. God, I used to read his articles on there. Doug Fisher was on there. Yep. Hey, Cody, I have an old T-shirt from Max Boxing about 15 years ago. <laughs> that tells you how long... And it, 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 it has fallen down quite a bit. Now, it really it hurts my feelings when I, and I'll tell you this, it hurts my feelings when I see comments like, is Max Boxing still around? <laughs> you know, and it's like, God, you know, I mean, trying really hard mm-hmm. to assemble a team and try to bring it back up. And it's not easy because, you know, it's fallen down. I know kids are improving, the hits are improving and all that stuff. And, and I've got some pretty good writers now, but... You know, I, I'm really determined to get people to at least try, try us, you know, and mm-hmm. see what we're trying to do. Because i got three or four good writers, and uh, uh, trying just to get people to give us another chance, because the reputation is still pretty reasonably there. So, and, and some people are trying, so I, I just, I'm going to just keep on doing that. Yeah, the second book, can't say much about it, because that's a chance, but we've got it in the planning stages. Mm-hmm. We're very excited about it. We're researching, and based on what happens with this one, hopefully we could, uh, 
the big thumbs up and we go. And, and uh, we're going to do it the same process. Two very famous fights. It's going to be the same idea. Two famous guys. And, uh, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm pretty dang excited. Dennis is pretty dang excited. Uh, and what we're really excited about is what happens with Instant Warfare. Because, like I said, it's published on December 1st. We're doing a few book signings. And uh, if it goes well, then, you know, we'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah, it's very exciting being involved in this. I, this is a dream of mine, Cody. I'll tell you, when I was a little kid, I always dreamed of writing a book. And uh, it's an amazing experience to have your dream come true. So like I said, I I pinch, I pinch myself constantly that I'm a very lucky person when it comes to this. Very lucky to have met Dennis. Very lucky to have met a lot of people. You know, met you in Chicago. That was a blast that night. You guys seen it we had with Matt, you, and Harrison, and all those guys. I remember that was great. That was an ESPN show. Yeah, that was so much fun. That was a lot of fun. It was it was great to have you out there. Yeah, to meet you and everything. We're in the front row all together. I mean, that was a, a total blast. So I I just feel, again, that I've just had kind of an angel on my shoulder and, and so much support, you know, uh, when I started out, and this is why I try to do this with anybody who's interested in writing uh, about boxing, is I had a great support group. You and all your guys were so supportive and gave me the compliments I needed, you know? And um, it's just been an incredible ride. So, you know, let's continue it. And, and uh, congratulations on your show, by the way. This is pretty exciting. So uh, It's very know, exciting. It's going pretty well. <laughs> Not too bad. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned having an angel on your shoulder and having compliments and stuff like that. But, honestly, you know... I think I think what what you've got going at this point in time going forward, John, is the fact that yes, you do have you do have an angel on your shoulder, and maybe there is a little luck invested, you know, or that's part of this. But uh, also, um, you know, a lot of this uh, uh, this success also comes with uh, a lot of hard work, and that's the thing that I've seen with you, um, you know, being part of the boxing media. Uh, so, listeners, uh, this right here, um, just to uh, uh, to recap. Um, my guest here, this is John J. Responti, uh, the head writer of MaxBoxing.com and DoghouseBoxing.com. Like I said, you can catch him every Sunday as part of the Ringside Boxing Show at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. And make certain you pick up a copy of his book, Intimate Warfare, the true story of the Arturo Gatti and Mickey Ward Boxing Trilogy, which he co-wrote with the founder and host of the Ringside Boxing Show, Dennis Taylor. John, I want to thank you so much for being part of the show today and being my first official boxing pundit guest on the show. Um, many, uh, just uh, congratulations on the book, and here's to a whole heap of success going forward, brother. Hey, I appreciate that so much, Cody. You've been such a great friend and so supportive when I started doing this, and, and I, you know you need that, and, and I appreciate that so much. Thanks so much for having me on. I'll come on anytime you want to talk about anything, so please have me on again, and we'll go there, and congratulations about your show, and Everything you're doing with the ring and, and uh, with Steve Kim, that's fantastic. You, you deserve it. You're a great person. So uh, uh, keep it going, and we'll talk soon, okay, brother? Will do, buddy. Thank you so much. Have an awesome day. I first encountered my next guest as uh, part of uh, a show that I was invited on, on uh, Ray Coyazo's uh, LatinoSportsTalk.com. Um, it was a show about pro wrestling called Marked Out, and... Uh, my guest, uh, Rene Gomez, was uh, partnered up with Angel Hernandez Rivera. Um, after a while, I started doing um, appearances on the show, and then um, Rene 
basically handed over the reins to me as he went to go attend to other business and stuff like that. Um, he uh, he had uh, was hosting other things and being part of other uh, uh, shows, and um, he uh, now writes a blog dedicated to sports and pop culture called The Learning Curve, and that's at www.thelearningcurvesports.blogspot.com. I'd like to welcome my second guest today, Renee Gomez. How's it going, Renee? Oh, it's going really well. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm actually very happy to be a part of the Coyote Duran podcast. Uh, you know, I've been listening for the first couple episodes, and I'd just like to say congratulations on your new endeavor, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to this seeing this thing take off for you, man. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it. Now, just like I said, folks, um, Renee is, is a, a has, he's a pro wrestling fan. Primarily, he likes WWE, um, and I think that you know, I think one of the things that I think it's safe to say was that as as you were enjoying WWE, I think you were learning quite a bit about it at the time, if if not the the general uh, the general essence of pro wrestling. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, pretty much when we had assembled marked out for, for Latino Sports Talk, uh, it was all a learning process for mm-hmm. me when it came to how to kind of like keep an eye out for how storylines develop. Sure. Um, you know, just things like that and, and, you know, keeping an eye on how promos are being done. And then I, I really learned that by listening, especially when YouTube took over and I just, you know, kind of like, took it upon myself to make it more of like uh, you know, wrestling one oh one kind of thing. I learned a lot from you guys, but I really appreciate that part of it and, and I've applied it towards, you know, how I view it now and I'm come a long way I think I, I think I have really. Yeah, and you know what, and even even when I joined and it was the three of us um, I think uh, uh, it, I think you were almost kind of serving as a moderator as well, you know, it, it, if things kind of cooked up to almost like a debate format between me and Angel. And I thought that was a really cool dynamic that we had going for a while. Um, but uh, I'd like to uh, uh, basically address what's going on this weekend. This weekend, the WWE has two straight days of programming uh, with uh, NXT TakeOver in Toronto on Saturday. And Survivor Series uh, in the very same uh, city on Sunday. Now, in your opinion, Renee, have these dual shows, uh, uh, the, the the weekends where these dual shows happen, do you think they further hammer home the consideration that NXT is more than just a developmental brand and that it's a true federation or a territory in and of itself? Well, I think if you ask um, a lot of casual fans, they do view it as a developmental league, but... For those of us who have really been paying attention to what NXT has been doing, uh, I think it kind of stands alone on itself really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, if you were to take what WWE does uh, with these, you know, the dark lit house shows and the smaller venues, I kind of think that's exactly what NXT is doing. It's just uh, a little bit easier to capture that uh, when you have the, the subscription to the network or maybe something like Hulu where you can actually watch the shows. Sure. They don't have it broadcast on, on cable television, but uh, for the most part, I think it really does stand alone on its own. I mean, you see a lot of these these talents; they come from other uh, leagues, whether it's uh, Ring of Honor or TNA or even New Japan, and and those are extremely competitive leagues on their own as well. It's just I think what they do for the WWE people that they bring in a lot of the time, with the exception of AJ Styles, is that uh, they want to bring them into the to the early 
media processes to see how the crowd reacts to them, to see if they can get them over a lot sooner. Sometimes it takes a little bit more time than others, but uh, for the most part, I think that, again, it just stands alone in its own perfect product in my opinion. Triple H is doing a great job. Yeah, he's doing a hell of a job, too, and I think maybe he even surprised himself with as well as he's done because it almost seems like, of course, his father-in-law, Vince McMahon, kind of looks at it like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a, you know, just a, maybe just a different kind of sandbox and it's not as serious. Um, and, you know, even if he does uh, uh, see that there are just really, really terrific gains from this venture, he might not want to admit it because he's such a control freak. Um, now, we've got this great card uh, lined up for uh, NXT TakeOver in Toronto. Uh, of course, it's culminating in the, uh, uh, the, the the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, the second straight year for this tournament. Um, it's culminating on Saturday. Uh, we're going to see the team formerly known as the Mighty Don't Kneel, which is known now as TM61, Nick Miller, and Shane Thorne. Uh, they're going to face, of course, Paul Ellering's Authors of Pain in the final. Now, do you think, in your opinion, do you think the WWE is trying too hard to push the Authors of Pain as the Road Warriors 2.0, as they're as they're now being guided by Paul Ellering? Well, you know, they certainly do come off that way mm-hmm. with the uh, the attitude and the brutality that they have in their matches. Uh, the only thing that I, I, I want to kind of look at them differently with is because yeah, Paul Ellering does have that attachment to the Road Warriors, and, you know, given his resume, whether you look at his pro wrestling career, which unfortunately was cut short, but as a manager, he's been very successful. Um, you know, I think I think what we want to do with this particular team is kind of look at them in a way like maybe like a, an Iron Sheik or, a, um, you know, the Butcher would be mm. like, you know, if we were to pair those kinds of guys up together. And um, and if you did have a team like Abdullah and, and the Sheik, you know, Iron Sheik together, I think this is kind of the product you would kind of get. Maybe with, obviously they talk a lot less than those two wrestlers from the 80s and 70s, but um, I really do appreciate that, like I said, the brutality of their matches really makes them look like an unstoppable force. But that match that they had in round three with DIY, yes. really exciting match. And if it wasn't for a little bit of interference, we might be looking at a different final matchup here. And not just that, I mean, considering that DIY, uh, uh, Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano, uh, their consolation prize, uh, you know, in, in that regard is not that bad, being that they're going to be facing the Revival in a two out of three falls match for the NXT Tag Team title. So that's that's not bad. You know, we're going to get to see these two indie darlings, you know, who are, uh, obviously have worked very hard to, to get to their current station. So, you know, in, in your, uh, your comparison... Uh, of uh, uh, of the authors to you know guys like let's just say a, a, a like a hypothetical tag team of Abdullah the Butcher and uh, and Rene Gomez or, I'm sorry I'm just looking at you and uh, uh, and Rene Gomez absolutely and uh, the Iron Sheik is very apt I think that's a, a fantastic comparison um, so now you know we've got uh, you know to, to round out the card we also have Shinsuke Nakamura versus Samoa Joe for the NXT title. Um, there's uh, Mickey James returning uh, to the WWE as a whole, uh, uh, challenging Asuka for the NXT Women's Championship. But the other interesting bout, we've got Bobby Roode, who at one time was known as what uh, uh, is considered an, an, uh, a TNA original. Uh, he had labored with uh, TNA Impact for quite a long time, you know, made his name there, um, was uh, one half of Beer Money, part of Fortune. He's facing Ty Dillinger at, uh, at TakeOver. 
uh, what is it? I mean, is is it more than just a theme song and appearance and, and and a new appearance and attitude for Rude? What is it that's making Bobby Rude so, I guess, attractive to the eyes of NXT viewers these days? Well, I like to think that uh, NXT viewers and fans that that you know enjoy this wonderful product are very well versed in the history of wrestling, not just what they're getting from NXT. And when I look at Bobby Roode, especially this version of Bobby Roode, what I see, in my opinion, is like a, a Ric Flair 2.0. Yes, yes. And, and it, it's like the perfect feel, you know, like a refreshed version of it. And who doesn't love the run that Ric Flair went on for all those decades? And to see Bobby Roode, you know, I know he's, you know, still in his prime, but you can still extend that out for even another decade, considering how the way he wrestles, he's just preserved, he's preserved his career very nicely. You could get another decade out of him. So I think with the attitude, like you mentioned, the glamour, the, the showmanship, uh, his, prom- his promos are just fantastic, especially the one he just peeled off um, last week on NXT about how Ty Stillinger isn't going to be the perfect 10 at NXT TakeOver. He'll, the crowd will see he's the perfect loser and the perfect failure. You know, stuff like that is just, to me, that is just exactly what we would have gotten from a Ric Flair 20 years ago. So that's that's what I see. I love it. I appreciate it. I just can't wait to get more of it. Um. Uh- on my premiere show, I had answered a, a, a battery of questions that you sent, and I was so appreciative that that really helped guide things into the direction that they're heading now with the Coyote Duran show. One of them, you, all very good questions, all important questions. One of them you had mentioned or you had brought up was, uh, you know, how well SmackDown is doing as opposed to Raw, and my response was that I thought it had a lot to do with uh, potential storylines. It almost seems, however, that in the run-up to Survivor Series, maybe it's just me, I just, I guess maybe questioning the format, but it seems like Raw and, and, uh, and SmackDown kind of labored a little bit this week, being, uh, you know, the go-home shows toward uh, Survivor Series. Um, Raw seemed rather boring to me, with the exception of, uh, uh, of you know, the final uh, uh, battle that happened between uh, Raw and SmackDown, which we saw Team Raw uh, basically disassemble Team Smack uh, Team SmackDown right before uh, uh, the end of the uh, the end of the show, uh, and then we saw something similar, of course, with Team SmackDown, um, you know, uh, pushing away Team Raw on SmackDown on Tuesday night. Now, do you think this? What was it really necessary for us to? You know, have these uh, uh, these all these tag team matches and and to try to establish team unity, um, or did it seem clunky and awkward to you? I thought maybe it was a little more of the latter. Oh, I completely agree with you on that one. Uh, first of all, I think what you kind of do wrong is you're kind of showing the people what you're going to give them. Hopefully, it's not going to be like that awkward and clunky mm-hmm. uh, come Sunday. But that's exactly what we saw on Monday and Tuesday, and even the week before with a couple of these uh, big matches where, I mean, I don't understand why you have to put your own team against each other the week before for your main event. And, and, you know, yeah, it was awesome to see Braun Strowman get crushed through a table, but, I mean, was any of this necessary? Did it help build what we like to see, as as you mentioned before earlier in this, this, uh, you know, interview here was, what is it with the 
well, and I don't think we got as much as we should have until it came to a, a few, you know, maybe quotes with the dialogue going on between Stephanie and Shane, which all, all it really was is them feuding with each other and taking some pieces with them to war, like it was a chess match. So I think we could have touched on that a little bit more. Maybe we didn't touch on it enough because that was kind of the whole reason for the brand split was that the two of them had been working together for a while. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it became, all right, well, daddy's going to pick who's going to get what show. And I don't think we really touched on that very much. You know, in the beginning, they were showing respect to each other about how competitive each brand was. And then going into this, there was still a little bit of that respect. Then the cockiness started to emerge, but we still didn't really get enough from them too. And it was mostly about the competitors in the matches, and I just didn't really see enough of the camaraderie. Uh, and sometimes when they did show it, it was a little bit lame, maybe not so believable. It was more about how they were just going to have such a hard time keeping it together as a team. Yeah, and you know what? I think that uh, the, the real tension and, and what could be perceived as true tension uh, came out in uh, uh, the t in, in the show that was broadcast right after Raw. It was called uh, State of the WWE Universe, and it was on the network. I think that the tension really came out in what could be seen as a work shoot because, you know, as they were arguing, each side of, you know, whether it was the commissioners or the general managers, uh, they started arguing, and there was it was really kind of getting heated to the point to where Daniel Bryan actually even called out Mick Foley for when he retired. He actually brought up, he evoked the name of TNA Impact. He said, when you retired, you left the WWE and went to compete in TNA Impact. I'm like, wow. And that was something that was kind of buzzing throughout social media and some of the... Uh, you know, some of the uh, the major wrestling news uh, sites. Um, now, as we head into Survivor Series, you know, Survivor Series Toronto, Canada, it's like 93 hours long. You know, it's a huge, huge show. One of the main bouts that we're looking at, of course, that's had some major buildup is Brock Lesnar and Goldberg. Now, I, it almost seemed like that was kind of a clunky thing, too, at least from my estimation. There was just way too much anger from Goldberg, you know, him trying to tell, uh, uh, you know, uh, Paul Heyman to shut up at every every avenue, them having a weak security force. I mean, who thought these little guys were going to stop these two, you know, maniacs? And then, I mean, and it was really reminiscent of Lennox Lewis and, uh, versus Mike Tyson when before they started their match many years ago. Um, now... Did we really need this bout to promote a video game? And does do you think Goldberg has a shot at defeating Lesnar at Survivor Series? Oh well, you know what? When you brought up the part about the promotion promotion of the video game, it's like yeah, you know what? That's exactly what this is. Because mm -hmm. like, whenever you watch some of these uh, you know commercials, they have the Goldberg part, you have the Suplex City part, and I don't know, maybe it's just creative pushing it, maybe it actually was Goldberg wanting to make a comeback. I just, I don't know, like, okay, there are parts of it I do like, and that's as always, Paul Heyman's ability to just get Brock over, get get a feud over, and, uh, and he did what he does all the time, and this was perfect as far as him setting it up. Mm -hmm. Now, the two of them having to finish off before we get into a match, you know, that maybe not have, have been so successful, I mean, Last night probably was the best part of the entire process that we've seen as it has been built up. And you're right, I think it was pretty predictable that, yeah, we saw the security was there to block them off. But when you see Paul Heyman out there, you know his job is going to be to add 
had to take Goldberg. Not Goldberg has shown his frustrations with Paul Heyman throughout this process. Yep. So what's going to end up happening here, you can probably tell, is that Paul Heyman's going to say something to piss off Goldberg, and you're going to see him try to go after Brock Lesnar. And surprisingly enough, Brock didn't want any part of it, even though he showed that I'm not going to back down, I'm just not going to give it to you right now. So I think that was smart on his part. I think it was good that they didn't get into it because I've seen Monday Night Raw and even SmackDown in a lot of cases where they give away the physical activity before we go into our pay-per-view. So you, you want to leave the crowd wanting more of that. And I think they handled it in the end. I think in the end they handled it as about as perfect as you could have considering everything built up to that point. I don't know if you agree with that, but what, what did you think? What were your thoughts? Well, no, you know what? I do agree with that to, to where I was glad that they didn't start throwing down. It, it seemed like it was it was kind of feeling a little forced, and they really didn't know which way they were going with the dialogue. But once things started breaking down and Brock kind of teased him on the ring apron and jumped down, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, okay, this is cool, because to me, that brought back memories of uh, uh, of all the initial teasing between the Wyatt family and the S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, years ago when, when, you know, they would almost start getting into it and the shield would command the ring and then the Wyatts would approach the apron and they would just kind of leap down and, you know, where, you know, you had the crowd going, this is awesome and not even one punch is being thrown. So I thought that was, it was very effective. Right. It, in the end, it was very effective. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what I thought was really good to cap it off with because, and, you know, I remember seeing this match years ago and I didn't like it then and I'm not really looking forward to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but at least, at least it piqued some interest for me after how Monday Night Raw ended with that segment, uh, with, or at least with that segment ending, not the show ending. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, what, what are you going to do? You're going to say, hey, Paul Heyman's out here for a reason. He's done his job. It's up to these guys now to at least make it look like a, a at least a halfway decent match because, I mean, look, Goldberg hasn't been in the ring for more than 10 years. He's 50 years old. What is there to expect, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, I see Lesnar just just plowing through him. I mean, it would be, it would it would be very forceful to try to you know commit something of a of, of a storyline for uh for Goldberg to to you know be dominant and victorious. I mean, you know, could he possibly you know wipe him out with a jackhammer? I doubt it. I mean, is a spear going to be enough to take out Brock Lesnar? I doubt it. Um, if there's any hope for him to win, it's for sentimentality and uh, and uh, uh, nostalgia's sake. But I don't think he's got it where it counts. When we're in, like like you know we're talking about twelve years later, Lesnar is a different kind of beast. No pun intended. A very different, very evolved. Just I mean his his level of of destruction is just like above and beyond. We've seen him cut a swat through you know the roster. Uh, Goldberg, I don't think he's going to be any different. I mean, you know, logic dictates that age is, is going to wind up being his Achilles heel in this one. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to also bring up, too, is, like, how is it that you can go into this one? How, how can you justify a Goldberg victory when you have built Brock to this point as pretty much almost the unstoppable force with the exception of, you know, an Undertaker tap out that I, I yes. think what ended up happening with that match is, is you know, I got that wrong, maybe, was a, a double count-out or something that, something weird and quirky that happened during that feud with The Undertaker for those three matches where The Undertaker actually got, you know, a win. But, um, you know, it's, how can you build Brock up this way to this point 
to lose to a guy who hasn't even been in, you know, in the ring for, like you said, 12 years. I knew it was more than 10, but 12 years, to me, I don't think you can justify that. So, no, not at I, all. I mean, not at all. And you were right about uh, the, the Undertaker, uh, uh, his victory over Brock Lesnar in their rematch. That was when he had made uh, – he didn't actually – well, um, Lesnar didn't tap out. Lesnar actually passed out after giving him the finger because ah. he, had, he had crotched uh, uh, Lesnar. He hit him with a low blow, and then he got him in that arm bar and made him conk out. Uh, so it was, it was a submission for the books. Uh, but it was definitely it was defiant. You know, it was he didn't he didn't tap out, but you know it was he he conked out basically. Um, as we look at the rest of what's going on for Sunday, you know there are some some bouts where it's like I, you know it, it almost seems like they're just unnecessary. But the 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 uh, the sticking point, the bone of contention, was basically always going to be Raw versus SmackDown. So I look at something like. The women's bout, you know, we've got Team Raw, we've got Charlotte Flair, Bailey, Nia Jax, Alicia Fox, and Sasha Banks versus Nikki Bella, Becky Lynch, Alexa Bliss, Carmella, and Naomi. And I look at that, and it's almost like, ah, oh, you know, when when we used to see before the Divas Revolution, we used to see these mega tag team matches between the women's roster, or among the women's, women's roster. And, you know, we're longing for bouts that were, you know, NXT quality. It's like I look at that and I almost see uh, another clunky match that's really unnecessary. But, you know, this also goes back to the spirit of competitiveness. So I'm not really going to comment so much on that. But the one that has me really, I mean, we've got other bouts, of course. We've got The Miz, who regained his Intercontinental Championship last night, defending against Sami Zayn. We've got Brian Kendrick defending against Kalisto. Uh, like in both those cases, you know, if Zayn wins, uh, the belt goes to Raw. If uh, Kendrick gets defeated by Kalisto, the belt and all the cruiserweights go to SmackDown Live. Uh, but the one that's really got me, um, the one that I'm really, really excited about is the main event. And we saw this being touched upon last night, and I'll get to this shortly. We've got Team Raw, which consists of the Universal Champion Kevin Owens, uh, his quote-unquote best friend, Chris Jericho, U.S. champion Roman Reigns, Braun Strowman, and the man, Seth freaking Rollins, versus Team SmackDown, which consists of the world heavyweight champion, AJ Styles, Dean Ambrose, Bray Wyatt, Bray Wyatt's new family guy, uh, Randy Orton, and Shane McMahon, of all people, with James Ellsworth as their mascot. Now, I wondered a little bit, Renee, why they had to have Shane McMahon on their team. Why why Daniel Bryan thought it was pertinent to have Shane McMahon. And in that regard, it, it almost seemed a little weird that the that the subordinate employee decided this is who's going to be on the team. You know, so, you know, obviously Shane had no problem with it. Otherwise, he would have said, no, I, I don't, I'm not going to be a part of this. However, last night on the SmackDown's, on SmackDown Live's 900th episode, uh, the in, the Undertaker, of course, he came back to kind of say hello and tip his hat to Shane McMahon, which I thought was awesome. Uh, you know, basically calling him a man who basically was all nuts and guts. Um, you know, with uh, the Undertaker placing so much emphasis on the Survivor Series being his event of origin, could we be getting set up uh, for a Team Raw win that could see the Undertaker cut a vengeful swath through Team SmackDown in the aftermath? What do you think, Renee? Well, you know, he kind of set it up that way. I mean, he said something as much as, uh, I believe he said uh, that they shouldn't fear failure or something like that. They should fear him yes. if they don't succeed. Something yeah. to that extent. 
So uh, that kind of made an eyebrow raise. I, I wasn't sure where that would be going because he mentioned so much about the, the Survivor Series history that he had, and then he also said that, you know, SmackDown was his home. So it kind of surprised me. And, all, and meanwhile, all this is going on while Edge has make, made his return to the arena to do a cutting edge segment. So I really appreciate all that, seeing all mm-hmm. that going on. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm wondering here if, if that could be a possible setup. I think it was really just a motivational speech from the dead guy, considering how this, this is, has been such a competitive uh, thing the last week or so. Sure. Uh, coming from, uh, definitely coming from him, though, it, it's something that has to really be in the back of, of Team SmackDown's minds. I mean, do they really want to lose to the, the flagship? You know, even though maybe the television ratings have shown that, uh, and I've seen them before, that Raw has kind of seen a dip over the last several months, even before the brand split. And since the brand split, SmackDown has actually seen a nice little increase. Uh, and even, even some people, some of the people who are, you know, blogging about wrestling and talk about wrestling on message boards and whatnot are, are saying how SmackDown has become the better show of the week. Uh, I think that this is a lot of pressure on them, you know, and, and he has to kind of reiterate, hey, even though there is pressure, you got to finish the job. And uh, and so I like that. I think it kind of puts that in their brains that, hey, look, this is really something we got to do. And it sets it up. We're missing that story building we've been talking about. This is a nice little nugget to throw in there. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you agree with that part, but I think that it helps a lot with, with this whole thing because, like, you're right. This is the one we really should be looking forward to. I do agree with you wholeheartedly in that regard. Uh, before we go, uh, let's go ahead and do a quick prediction. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, the Miz versus Sami Zayn. Who do you got in that one? I would really hate to see Ross steal another title. They already have the U.S. title, and they have matched three other titles in important categories. I think that the IC title needs to stay. Plus, it's better in Miz's hands anyway. Um, when he's the champion, it just seems like he has so much more controversy and, and notoriety as the champion there, especially during that run where he and, and Daniel Bryan were having, you know, you know, I agree with that too. And it almost seems like the IC belt and the Miz are defining each other almost in the way the World Heavyweight Championship and Ric Flair defined each other throughout the years. So that's a, that's a really good call. Um, in, uh, uh, in the Cruiserweight uh, uh, bout, Brian Kendrick versus Kalisto. Who do you got in that one? Well, I got Kalisto... Uh... And, and for many reasons, I think that with the, with the whole Cruiserweight Classic that you and I had been huge fans of during that summer, mm-hmm. now that it's transpired over to, you know, the, the main shows, I don't think Raw has done a really good job of, of showcasing the Cruiserweight, you know, talents they have. So I think it's better in SmackDown's hands, where Daniel Bryan is attached to it, where he was the table announcer yeah. for the Cruiserweight Classic, yeah. so I think he kind of knows how to handle this. So it's good to have the Cruiserweight Championship there. You already got Kalisto there, who is a proven champion um, with the U.S. title that he had not too long ago. And then uh, and then you're going to bring over the entire roster of the Cruiserweight division to SmackDown. And I've also known that, uh, you know, there's you know it's been in the works for a while, that 205 live show that's going to be on the WWE Network is going to be airing immediately after SmackDown on 
Tuesday, so it only seems like they're setting the stage for it to change hands over to SmackDown. I like the way you're thinking there. I think that's I think that's likely to happen. I think Kalisto is is, is you know basically uh, uh, he's definitely the heir apparent. You know, you're looking at the one lone little guy who's left. So I think that's a natural transition. Um, predictions for the 10 versus 10 Survivor Series tag team match. We've got the New Day, Sheamus, Cesaro, Luke Gallows, and Carl Anderson, Enzo Amore and Big Cass, and Primo and Epico versus Team SmackDown, Heath Slater and Rhino, the Hype Brothers, American Alpha, the Usos, and Brazango. Who do you got in that one? Um, honestly, I don't care who wins on either side, <laughs> but I would love to see if, uh, Primo and Epico were able to, uh, you know, sell Heath Slater and Rhino on a timeshare. I think that would really cap that off nicely. That'd be fun. <laughs> well done, sir. Okay, the all-ladies match. The Team Raw versus, I touched upon the participants earlier, Team Raw versus Team SmackDown. Uh, do you think that this is an important enough match? Or And uh, and who do you see winning? Um, well, you know, there's really not much to gain here. The women's division has really suffered since the brand split. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlotte has carried it. I mean, I think she's honestly carried the women's division on her own. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it's going to be an opportunity to see, uh, you know, Bailey against all this tough action here because I know they're bringing her up along slowly to be the one that's going to have a feud with Charlotte because it just isn't working with the Sasha Banks and Charlotte thing. Yes, we've gotten great matches. They have been epic matches, historical matches, especially at Hell in a Cell. But uh, they're grooming Bailey to be the one that's going to be the face versus the, the heel feud that they need in the women's division to help bring it up a little bit more since the step back. So I, I, I'm hoping that uh, Team Raw can actually showcase their talent. They have the better women's roster. Okay, now the main event. Oh, great, excellent, excellent. I think that's a, I think that's a, a solid uh, a solid assessment right there, especially in regard to Bailey, because Bailey does seem to, you know, of course Charlotte is is the uh, has been carrying everything, but it seems like Bailey is is starting to emerge as the glue that's kind of keeping everything together, especially you know, right. uh, in, in especially what we saw with their their grasp at unity and their their most recent uh, uh, foray against Team SmackDown. Now, of course, now we got... Uh, right, and I... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, and I, and I was going to say, even on top of that, just to piggyback on that, mm-hmm. it seems only the transition her as the one that seems to have, seems to be the number one option to have that do with Charlotte, because Sasha, in my opinion, like this, this baby face where she's more leaning towards the face side doesn't seem to work for her very much. I would prefer to see her lean more towards the heel side. She doesn't have to go full, full turn, but... You know, it, it, this seems to be more natural for Bailey to be in the position that Sasha's in right now, and Sasha to kind of like not even take a back seat, but go back to more of her something that's more natural for her, which is to have more attitude, and and I think that would really work ultimately in the long run for the women. Sounds good. So let's go to the uh, the main event. Uh, we discussed, of course, uh, you know, the main event between. Uh, uh, about uh, Team Raw versus Team SmackDown. You know, of course, you've got uh, the side of Raw that's uh, headed up by Jericho and Owens, and you've got SmackDown, which has AJ Styles leading uh, leading the group into battle. What's your quick prediction on that bout? On that bout, rather. This one's going to be interesting. Um, I really want to see Braun Strowman show people that when he's against the top talent, he can justify 
by, you know, basically forcing Nick Foley's hand mm-hmm. uh, to get him tougher competition. Because, I, I, to be honest with you, that whole string of jobbers that he had to, you know, basically throw into the, the mat every night, that was boring, and this is really the best way to use him. But you got to use him right in this match. You can't have him go out early. He's got to be one of the last men standing for Team Raw. Um, and it wouldn't be uh, a controversial match for this one if it wasn't involving James Elworth doing something stupid that could possibly lead to SmackDown's demise. So, uh, <laughs> and, you know, to me, that he's there for a reason. So why not use him for that? And uh, and I think ultimately what's going to happen is uh, Team, SmackDown, Team SmackDown will still get the victory despite Ellsworth, you know, uh, <laughs> attempts to try to, to foil the win, even though he doesn't do it on purpose. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm with you on that. I want I, – I, I don't quite know if they're going to take the win – but I'm definitely rooting for, for for the blue team. I think uh, uh, I think the talent. There's more hunger there. Um, there's more. Uh, uh, there there's definitely more cunning there as well. Um, you know. Plus you've got you know Shane O'Mac, who's who's uh, uh, you know definitely serving as a very peculiar yet brave wild card. And I think that was one of the things that Undertaker was stressing uh, on SmackDown Live. Um, I'd like to thank you for chiming in and joining us on the show today, Renee. You definitely, it was awesome having you on, and I would love to have you on many, 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 many more times in the future to talk, to discuss anything, whether it's pop culture or professional wrestling. Um, like I said, folks, um, you can uh, check out Renee Gomez's blog, The Learning Curve, which is dedicated to sports and pop culture. It's at www.thelearningcurvesports.blogspot.com. And I can vouch for this guy. I know he's a hell of a writer. Uh, he's a, definitely a hell of a guy to have on a podcast. I appreciate his time today. I appreciate you so much, Renee. Thank you so much. Um, and, uh, um, you know, definitely, folks, check out uh, uh, the WWE program this weekend on the network. You're going to be able to see uh, some fantastic NXT action on Saturday. And on Sunday, uh, the 93-hour extravaganza known as Survivor Series. So uh, thank you so much, Renee, for being on the show. And that brings episode three of the Coyote Duran show to a close. I'd like to thank my guests today, John J. Responti and Renee Gomez, for popping in and offering their two cents on this weekend's action, as well as uh, John for sharing information on his new book. Uh, you can follow John on Twitter at JohnBoxing1. That's uh, J-O-H-N-B-O-X-I-N-G and the number one. Um, you can also follow Renee Gomez on Twitter at A-Z, capital A-Z, underscore, Desert Devil, D-E-S-E-R-T-D-E-V-I-L. And you can also visit Renee at thelearningcurvesports.blogspot.com and follow John and his work at maxboxing.com and doghouseboxing.com, as well as tuning in every Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific time for the Ringside Boxing Show. As per usual... I'm Coyote Duran, copy content editor for ringtv.com and ucnlive.com. I want to wish you a good rest of the day, a good rest of the evening. Uh, be careful out there. Be safe. Uh, keep your eyes open on the way home from work and do not forget to eat breakfast. Most important meal of the day. Um, stay tuned. Uh, you know We'll make certain we get more episodes out. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for following and thank you so much for listening. See ya.